Okay, this morning is our last Sunday in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, my staff asked me if I was sad about that, that Ecclesiastes is wrapping up. Hasn't it been a fun series to preach? My answer is an unequivocal no. I'm not sad at all for Ecclesiastes to come to an end. It's been an incredibly depressing book. Ecclesiastes is full of problems, but offers very few solutions. So chapter after chapter, we have been confronted with the problem of sin, the problem of evil, the problem of oppression, the problem of corruption, the problem of suffering, and the worst problem of all, the problem of death. Look with me at chapter 9 real quick. Let's see what Solomon says about the problem of death. It's a problem that's been staring at us through all the chapters of this book, but it really comes out in chapter 9. Look at verse 2. Solomon says it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the, son, of the, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Solomon's point is that everyone will die. There's no escaping it. So just let's, let's face that fact. Unless Jesus comes back first, every single one of us in this room will die of an accident or violence or disease or simply old age. There's no way out of that reality. We will all die. And in chapter 12, Solomon describes what it's going to be like to grow older. And he uses a lot of metaphors from the ancient world, and they're all quite horrible. He describes what life is going to be like for you as you get older. You're going to become weak. You're going to stoop over. Your eyes are going to become dim, meaning you can't see clearly anymore. You'll have cataracts. You'll, you'll no longer be able to walk. You'll become impotent. You can't sleep. You have no energy. I'm not going to walk you through those metaphors. I'm not going to spend 10 minutes studying them with you. I'm just going to cut to the chase. Here's his point. As you grow old, this is what it's going to look like. You will grow older, it will hurt, and then you will die. That's Solomon's point. That's the problem of death. There's no way around this reality. You will grow older, it will hurt, and then you will die. And if this is news to you, I am really sorry to have to be the one who breaks this to you. I know this is horrible. I'm, I'm so sad to have to bear this bad news, but, but I'm convinced that it's true because I'm turning 40 in about three months, and I can already see it happening to me. So about two years ago, I sprained my neck where I couldn't turn it for a few days. I did it. Here's what I was doing. I was taking off a dress sock. That's all it took. One of those tight socks you wear with nice shoes. I reached down. I was pulling it over my heel. And boom, I felt my neck go. And that was it. And, and that showed me. I mean, I was 30. I was young at that point. That's two years ago. And already my body is breaking down. I'm growing older Age is setting in. I am on an unstoppable path towards death, and there's nothing I can do to change that. And there was nothing that Solomon could do about it either. He offers us absolutely no solutions to the problem of death. Because for Solomon, death was like a black hole full of despair. He knew almost nothing about death. The reason is because he had a much smaller Bible than yours. Solomon, his entire Bible was made up of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books in your Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. A little bit of Psalms, a little bit of the histories, and that's it. 
And in all of those books, God says almost nothing about the life that's coming after this one. So Solomon didn't have any hope in life after death. And so the subject of death, as he looked at people dying, as he looked at himself growing older and moving towards death, that thought filled him with despair. You see that in chapter 9. Look again at chapter 9. Let's pick it up where we left off. Look in verse 4. It says, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything. Nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun." Look down at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the grave where you are going. Solomon had no hope in life after death, and so it filled him with despair. Fortunately for us, we know that Solomon was mistaken about life after death because he didn't have the rest of God's revelation like you do. You have the rest of the Old Testament, including the prophets, who speak about the next life in great length. You have the Gospels, where Jesus talks about it. You have the New Testament letters, where Paul and Peter talk about it. And you have the revelation of John at the end of the Bible that gives you a lot of details that prove that Ecclesiastes is not the end. Death is not the end of your story. Now, there is hope that goes beyond Ecclesiastes because there's a life after this one. There is a better life coming for you and for everyone who has trusted in Jesus as your Savior. I need to camp on that for a moment. I need to just tell you really clearly right from the beginning. Everything else I'm going to say this morning in this sermon, it only applies to people who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. All of the good stuff about what's coming in the next life, those are things that God has promised only to people who have chosen to believe that Jesus really did die on the cross for their sins and rise from the dead so that they could have eternal life as a free gift. And so if you're here this morning and you have not yet chosen to trust in Jesus as your Savior, then all the stuff we're going to talk about this morning, it doesn't yet apply to you. If you're still thinking that you're going to get to heaven because of your good works or the fact that you came to church today or because just overall you're a pretty good person, you need to understand none of us will ever be good enough to deserve heaven. The only hope that we have in the next life is that Jesus, God's son, did all that was needed. When he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, he earned heaven for you. He earned forgiveness for you. He earned eternal life for you, and now he offers it to you as a free gift, but God doesn't force it on you. You have to say, yes, I want that. Yes, God, I'm done trying to earn your love. I'm done trying to merit eternal life. I just want it as a free gift that Jesus earned for me when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. The moment that you accept that free gift, then all of God's promises about the better world to come suddenly apply to you now and forever. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. God's promises to us, to believers, about what's coming after this life. There is a better world coming for those who have trusted in Jesus, and that better world begins with a restored garden. 
a restored garden. You see it in the book of Luke, actually, during Jesus' crucifixion. And Luke 23, the thief who was hanging on the cross next to Jesus, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, as he was hanging on his cross, said to the thief, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus calls the destination you are headed towards paradise. That's a a word in Greek, paradisus, and it comes from Persian. It was a word in Persian that described an enclosed garden or orchard that a king would build next to his palace. And in the ancient world, there was no place on earth as beautiful as a king's garden. It wasn't like our gardens. In the ancient world, kings poured all of their resources into these lavish gardens next to their palaces. Solomon actually talked in great length about his garden in chapter 2. The entire resources of the kingdom were dedicated to building these monumental gardens. They were so lavish that actually one of them is recorded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. People throughout the inhabited world would travel to Babylon to see this king's garden. It's this. It's a a paradise garden. The closest equivalent in our world, because none of those are still around, the closest equivalent that we can see that, that I have ever had the opportunity to witness with my own eyes is the tea gardens in San Francisco. So my wife and I, before we had kids, we were real, well, a little bit more adventurous than we are today. So we went to San Francisco, and we rented bikes, and we biked up and down the hills of San Francisco for 14 miles to go visit this garden, and one of the bikes was broken, so we had to alternate back and forth. It was absolutely exhausting. I I hurt for days after that, but it was totally worth it, because we walk into this walled garden, and we just saw the most spectacular things I've ever seen. We took pictures, and none of them come close to doing it justice. That's, That's awful compared to what it actually looked like. And there's no picture. Even if you could somehow capture the intensity of the colors and the sunlight filtering in through all of those trees, there's no way to capture the sound of all of these brooks running and the the fragrance of the flowers and just the feeling of overwhelming peace that encompassed you in that place. It was utterly breathtaking. One of the most beautiful places I have ever been. And yet that garden right there, the Japanese tea garden in San Francisco, it is nothing compared to the paradise you will see the moment after your death. Because this garden is still cursed by sin. This garden is still part of this planet. So it's still cursed by pollution and decay and disease and death. The garden that you're headed to, the paradise garden of God in heaven, there is no curse of sin. There is no decay. There is no pollution. There's none of those things affecting that garden. It will be a perfect paradise. In a very real sense, when you see the paradise of God, you will be returning to the garden of Eden. Because that's how the word is usually used in the Bible, paradise. It's usually used to describe Eden, the, the garden that God himself planted for humanity to live in Genesis chapter 2. Here's how it's described, Genesis 2, 8, and 9. God planted a garden, a paradise, that word, in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. 
garden. So this garden, this very good home that God made for humanity before sin came into the world. You see it in Genesis 2, and then interestingly, you see it at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 2. Here's what Jesus himself says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that is believers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, when you die, you're finally going home. You're finally going back to the garden that God designed for you way back when the world was made. You will finally be in the perfect place that God has made, a paradise unlike anything you have ever seen on this earth. So I want you to close your eyes for a second. Just close your eyes. Just humor me for a moment. Close your eyes, and I want you to picture the most beautiful place on this planet you've ever been. So, so where is that? Is it in the Rocky Mountains? Is it, is it on the beach? Is it on a beautiful lake? Is it by a stream? Is it in a garden? For me, it's the Maroon Bell Mountains in, in the Rocky Mountains. It was just utterly beautiful. I remember seeing it in the morning as the sun was rising, and only part of it was lit in sunlight. And I want you to feel the breeze for a moment, and I want you to see how the trees are moving in that breeze. And I just want you to feel what it felt like to be in that perfect place And then I want you to realize that what you are looking at right now is garbage compared to what you will see when you are with God. Because that scene, that beautiful place was on this earth, cursed by sin, broken by death, subject to decay and disease and all the bad things of this world. But the paradise you will see when you are with God, it will be more intense, more real, more beautiful, more perfect in every way. That's the first thing that's in store. For all of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, we're going to wake up into the paradise that God prepared for us back in Genesis chapter 2. Absolutely, utterly perfect. Second thing that's in store for all of us who've trusted in Jesus as our Savior, a righteous government. I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. It's just a little bit to the right in your Bible, just a tiny bit. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. You don't have to go very far. Last week, we talked about the fact that every government currently on earth disappoints us. It was all bad news. No government on earth can give us the security and the satisfaction that we crave. That's the bad news. The good news is that there's a better government coming when God returns. Now, I'm often asked, funny question, what's the best form of government? And people assume that I'm going to say democracy, right, because we're here in America. Um, no, no, that's, that's, that should be probably obvious this week. Just read the news. There are some serious problems with democracy. No, The best form of government possible is a benevolent dictator. That's actually what you want. You want a benevolent dictator. Who is that? That means a king who is always good, always loving, completely wise, totally powerful, and incorruptible. That's what you actually want, is a perfect king ruling over you always for your benefit. And that's what you'll have when Jesus comes back. In the next life, it's not going to be a democracy. No, we don't need to be voting. We don't know what we're doing. No, you're going to have God himself on the throne. And every decision he makes will be the decision that brings about your best life, your flourishing, your care, and the care for everyone else. 
So let's look at what's going to happen when God, particularly when Jesus returns, when we have the Lord on the throne of earth. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. It's a pretty great government. Look with me. Isaiah chapter 2, let's start in verse 3. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, that is Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. So the Lord is going to come back and he's going to rule from Jerusalem and he's going to rule in perfect righteousness and everybody on earth will come to him to learn how righteousness works. They'll want to know how to do the right thing that blesses everyone. And when Jesus is on the throne, he's going to bring a permanent end to violence and warfare. And so you have that beautiful line, they'll hammer their swords into plowshares. In other words, everything that was meant for a military purpose will be turned to a purpose of agriculture and blessing. And some of you have heard this story before. When I was a kid, I would walk the fences of my grandfather's farm, and there was one fence post that was held up by a a really big circular disc that never rusted. Never rusted because it was a titanium inlet nozzle off an intercontinental ballistic missiles engine. So my grandfather was involved in the space race with Russia, and so he had a bunch of rocket parts laying around. So here's this titanium part off an ICBM holding up a fence post on his farm, and you hear that and you laugh, but do you realize that we'll all do that one day? We'll have a bunch of spare parts laying around from ICBMs and stealth bombers and Abrams tanks that we'll use to hold up our fence posts because no one's ever going to need a weapon again. There will be no need to have a standing army. You won't train soldiers. No one will learn warfare. No one will learn self-defense because you'll never have anyone to defend yourself from again. You won't need to pack a gun because you'll never have to protect yourself from anyone. There will never be anything but perfect peace when Jesus returns. And it won't be like the peace that we have. Do we really have peace now? No. I mean, we don't have peace, obviously, with ISIS, but even with, like, China and Russia and and North Korea. Okay, we're not in open hostility towards one another, but we're always preparing for worst-case scenarios, right? You have peace through constant vigilance. That's not real peace. Real peace is when you go burn all your ammo because you'll never need it again. Perfect peace is when you never train your children to be soldiers in whatever war is coming next. Peace is when you know nothing but love with all of humanity under the banner of the Messiah and never fear anything bad happening again. That's the peace that Jesus is bringing. Your swords will be hammered into plowshares. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9. Flip a few pages to the right. We read chapter 9, verse 6, every year at Christmas. Look at that verse, very famous one. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's a verse about Jesus. And, And we read it every year, but we don't necessarily read the verses around it to see the context. So look with me starting in verse 3. 
It says in the future, when, when, when Jesus comes, when God comes back, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So, so everyone on earth will be glad, they will rejoice. Why? Because of verses four and five. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult the, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. So, so God, when he returns, he will bring an end to warfare. So, so here, rather than swords being beaten into plowshares, every soldier's cloak and boot, all the implements that were needed to, to have a standing army, it'll be firewood. You, you'll never need that again because the Messiah, when he returns, when Jesus comes back, he will bring an end to all warfare. He will bring perfect peace, but he'll also bring an end to the corruption we talked about last week. Remember how power always corrupts, how people always end up serving themselves and taking advantage of those who can't defend themselves. But look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There will be perfect justice and righteousness when Jesus returns. So what that means is that when Jesus is on his throne in this benevolent dictatorship, this perfect form of government on earth, there will never be another child abused, ever. There will never be another woman who is beaten. There will never be another elderly person who is taken advantage of. There will never be another minority who is oppressed. There will never be another poor person who will starve. Nothing like that will ever happen again. There will never be an instance, even a a moment of injustice when Jesus is on the throne. It will be the government you long for, even if you never knew it. Everything will be as it should be when Jesus is on the throne. So when you die and enter into the next life, you will find a restored garden and a righteous government. Third, you will receive a resurrected body. Resurrected body. I I told you a couple weeks ago, my wife, Julie, she loves buying roses. So she buys them all the time, and we, we have a lot planted at the house. We actually have some planted here at Southwood. She loves to grow roses because then you get to cut the roses and give them to people. And Julie has rightly observed that no one frowns when you hand them a rose. It's like always the appropriate gift, perfect gift all the time. There's just one problem with giving somebody a rose. It doesn't last long. As soon as you cut it, it begins to die. So you got a few days. And even if you don't cut it, if you leave it on the bush, it's only going to last a week. A rose reaches its peak and then it immediately begins to decay and head towards death, just like you and me. That's how it works. We reach our peak, maybe, maybe at 25, that's kind of the average, our mental and physical peak, and then it's all downhill. All downhill from there. You get to 25, you get your moment in the sun. You get your one day on the mountaintop and then you are falling head over heels down the other side of the mountain for the rest of your life. You're headed into decay. You're headed into death and there's nothing that you can do about that. And we try to do stuff about that, don't we? We try to slow the process of aging. We spend tens of thousands of dollars on medicines and cosmetics and surgeries and every possible thing we can think of to try to slow the process of aging and it does not work. You can't stop your body from growing older. 
Fortunately, the body you're in now is the not the last body you'll get. There is hope for a, a new body, a perfect body. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown or buried, your current body is perishable, meaning it does not last. It decays, it breaks down. But it is raised imperishable, meaning it can never break down. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What Paul wants you to understand about the body that's coming for you in the next life, it's not just a reanimation of your current body. You won't just get this body back with all of its faults, all of its problems, all of the things that break down on you. No, you will get a new perfected body. Resurrection is a new creative act by God. He creates for you a new and perfect body that is like your current body in some ways, but better in every way. And so as we think about our bodies, okay, our current bodies are vulnerable, they're perishable, they're weak, they're corrupted by sin, they're heading towards death. Let's contrast that with the resurrection body. The body you will get in the next life, it is invulnerable. It's unbreakable. You cannot be injured. You cannot become sick. There is no disease in the resurrection. There is no death. So the resurrection body is not subject to entropy, for those of you who are into science and stuff. You're not going to decay, not ever. Your resurrected body will be in a perfect state forever. So no matter what age you die at, even whether you're a baby or 90 years old, when you receive your resurrected body, it will be at peak age, whatever that is for you. Whatever your peak, it will be perfected. Peak mental, peak physical, peak spiritual, and it will never vary from that. You will be on a perfect plateau of absolute perfection forever. So your body, your new body will be invulnerable. Your new body will be freed from temptation. Can you imagine that when you receive your new body, it's not just that you're never going to sin again, it's that you're never going to want to sin again. There's never going to be a moment of inner warfare in heaven for you. That moment when your better angels and your worse angels are at war with each other, you know what you should do, but you don't want to do it, you're never going to feel that again. You are only ever going to want to do the right thing because you'll be completely freed from temptation once and for all. You will know peace in your soul unlike anything you've ever felt. Third, this new body, it will still be recognizably you. You will know it's you. We will know that it's you. Because Jesus, when he resurrected, the disciples knew. That's Jesus. We know who he is. He ate, he drank, he walked, he did normal stuff. It's a physical body. So you'll have a physical body that will be, resur- that will be recognizably you, but it will be the perfect you. The you that you always wanted to be in the next life. The resurrection of our bodies gives us hope. So when your body begins to let you down, which if it hasn't already, it will. For those of you who are young, it's coming. For those of you who are not, we know. Our body lets us down, and that fills us with sadness. We really hate when, when a joint aches or, or when we see a new wrinkle or a new gray hair, um, when we're, we're just so tired and can't sleep well at night. When that weighs you down and you feel discouraged, what I want you to do is instead of putting your hope in something this world offers, some new treatment, some new medicine, some, some new diet, some new exercise program, all of which are good things, you can do those things, but instead of putting your hope in those things, 
My encouragement to you is to put your hope in the new body that you'll get and the next life that will never be subject to disease, decay, suffering, pain, any of that ever again. The body you're in now is not the last one you get. You get a better one, a perfect one, just like Jesus did. So in the next life, we will receive a restored garden, a righteous government, a resurrected body, finally, fourth, relentless perfection. Relentless perfection. Turn to Isaiah 65, so end of the book of Isaiah. Now, as we look at the timeline of human history, the next big thing that's going to happen is the return of Jesus. Everyone agrees about that. Now, there's some disagreement. Will there be a rapture and a tribulation before that? We think so. Some churches don't. That's minor details. Everyone agrees that the next really big cataclysmic thing is that Jesus returns. And we believe that when Jesus returns, he's going to set up his government, which we saw in Isaiah. And he's going to rule this planet from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And you'll be there in your resurrected body. It will be the perfect version of life on this planet. But that's not the end of the story yet. Because after those thousand years of Jesus ruling perfectly on this planet, God creates a new planet, a new heavens and a new earth that is your eternal home. And Isaiah talks about that new heavens and new earth in Isaiah chapter 65. So look with me. Let's pick it up in verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. When you look at what Isaiah talks about with the new heavens and the new earth, the fundamental characteristic, the description that I want you to remember is relentless perfection. It's perfect forever in every way. Everywhere always completely perfect. In every way, this new heavens and this new earth is perfect because the curse of sin and death is finally finished. This planet that's broken, that disappoints us, it's finally, it's done. And the new heavens and the new earth, there's nothing to disappoint you. So you will never know sorrow again. You will know nothing but joy and gladness forever. In fact, it's really interesting what Isaiah says in verse 18. God is speaking through him. I create Jerusalem, not for rejoicing, literally, say, I create Jerusalem rejoicing and her people gladness. In other words, your nature, who you are, what you are, will be joy in the new heavens and the new earth. Joy won't be something that you work for like you do in this life. In this life, you've got to choose joy. You feel awful, but you got to choose to rejoice in God. Re- joy and, and rejoicing is a difficult choice you make every day. You have to work at it. In the next life, you won't. You never have to work at joy. It's just what you will be all the time. You will know nothing but gladness. It will be your nature down to the inside of you. You will have nothing but joy and gladness forever. There will never be sorrow. There will never be crying. There'll be no reason to weep. There will never be anything that hurts you. No pain, no loss. Everything will be perfect. John gives us more details at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. I'll just put them up here on the screen to save us some time. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The same thing Isaiah was talking about. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Let's pause here for a second and and notice a few things. John says, "I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth, but it's still earth. 
You notice that? New heaven and new earth, but still called earth because it's still similar to what you're on right now. Where are you going to spend eternity? It's not going to be some ethereal state floating in the clouds. You'll be on a planet like this one, only infinitely better. A new earth that takes everything good about this planet up to perfection. I love what C.S. Lewis says in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Last Battle. C.S. Lewis has some characters in that book, and they die, and they enter into his version of the new earth, which we, he calls the new Narnia. And here's what they, they notice. Um, one of the characters says to the others, I, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I, I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. That's what the new earth will be for you. It's, it's the new earth. It's still earth. So whatever you like here on this planet, mountains, you like the mountains, better mountains then. They'll be more grand, bigger, taller, more awesome. You, you like the beach, it'll be more perfect then, more beautiful then. You, you like lakes, they're going to be better there. You like the forest, better there. You like flowers my, like my wife does, they'll be more intense, more fragrant, and they'll never get decayed and ugly there. They'll be perfect The new earth takes everything about this earth up a notch. So much so that that what Lewis is saying, I think he's right on it, every time you see something in this world that you really enjoy, it's because it's a shadow of the world you were designed for. So the sunset that just fills you with joy, it's because there's a better one coming. And you're seeing a glint of it, just a hint of it now. New heavens and the new earth will be perfect. Now, you, you may notice, John said there's no sea, and some of that's, some, for some of you, that bums you out because you like the sea. I like it too. I like the ocean. I don't know if John's being literal or metaphorical here. In the ancient world, the sea was a metaphor, was a symbol of chaos and destruction. They feared it. And so John's point, whatever he's saying, whether there's an ocean or not, the point is there will be nothing in the new earth that will ever make you afraid. No natural disasters, no hurricanes, no tornadoes, no floods, no forest fires, none of that. There will, never be, I, there will never be warfare between man and nature again. That's his point there. Okay, so let's go back in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. So after talking to us about this new heavens and new earth, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. You may have noticed that in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. God comes to dwell. That's an important point. The new heavens and the new earth are one. It's not like today. Today there's a separation between earth and heaven. You can't see Heaven. You can't see God face to face. There's this divide. In the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be. God's home, the new Jerusalem, will actually come and land on the new earth, and heaven and earth will forever be one, be united. They'll overlap and complete each other. We will be with God. It will be his home and our home forever. And the result of God being with us in this new, perfect heaven and earth is the last verse here, verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In other words, every problem that Ecclesiastes raised will finally be solved solved to such an absolute extent that it will be completely set aside. You'll never think about it again. 
You're not going to have a moment in the new heavens and the new earth where suddenly you're overwhelmed by the memory of something bad you did. You'll never feel guilt or shame about that bad decision you made. You'll never feel sadness over some loss in the past. You won't even remember the painful things of this life. That, That will be gone. All you'll remember is joy, is the goodness of God, the love of God. Everything will be so perfect in the new heavens and the new earth that you'll never have reason to cry again. You'll know nothing but perfection, nothing but joy forever. And so all of the problems that Ecclesiastes raised, they're solved in the next life. And that's what we have to realize. As we go through this life, the solution is in the next life. It's not here. So let me talk to you about how to make this practical. As the men go back to prepare communion, as they go get it ready, let me talk to you about how we practically live out these realities. How should you live as a person who knows that life won't get better till the next life? What do you do when you know that your hope is in the next life, not this life? What does it look to live that out? Well, let me give you a couple thoughts, a couple verses. First verse is actually from Ecclesiastes itself. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. First thing is remember your creator. Remember that there is a God in heaven, that he loves you, that he is watching over you, that he is using all the painful things of this life for your good. And most of all, remember that your creator who's up there has made incredible promises to you. He's promised you a a destiny, an eternity that is far better than anything you can have in this life. And so I want you to not only remember God, but remember the promises he's made to you about the next life. John talks about that in Revelation. He says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Blessed is he who reads. Do you want to be blessed by God? A lot of people think that that's like some mystical, magical thing. How do I roll the dice? What do I do to get blessing? Just read. Read what? Read the promises. Read Isaiah 65. Read John 21, or Revelation 21. Actually, read all of Isaiah. It's beautiful. Read all of Revelation. It's crazy, but beautiful too. Read the promises of God, and you will be blessed. This itself, this is a promise. Revelation is the only book that actually tells you that. Read this book and you will be blessed. It's a guarantee. You don't have to wonder what to do to be blessed by God. Just read. What he's promised you is coming next. If you will saturate your mind with the hopes that you have in the next life, if you'll read back over the passages we've read together today, if you'll commit them to memory, if you'll saturate your life in these promises, it will bless you and it will give you hope when this life disappoints you. Because this life is going to disappoint you. If your hopes are in anything in this world, Solomon's proven, you're going to get let down. So live your life in these promises about the next life so that you can have hope, so that you can remember that your best life is not now. Your best life is in the next life. When you live forever in the paradise of God under his righteous, perfect government in your resurrected, perfected body, enjoying relentless perfection for all of eternity in your new heavens and new earth. That's the hope that we have. And it's a hope that we have because of Jesus. And that's why we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Because none of us have earned the new heavens and the new earth, right? You don't deserve to be there. Neither do I. If it was up to us, if it was up to us to earn heaven, to earn resurrection, to earn the new heavens and the new earth, all of us would fail. All of us would spend eternity apart from God. 
The only reason that we get all of these great things in the next life is because Jesus loves us so much that he died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life as a free gift. And communion's where we say thank you. So as the men come forward, you guys can come up. As they pass the elements, I'm going to ask you to use this time to just say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, because I would have no hope without you. Thank you, Jesus, that you took sin and death in my place so I could have life and heaven forever. Take this time and just give thanks. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me heavenly father today we remember the hope that we have in your son jesus lord i thank you for a fun sermon this morning that after weeks of looking at the problems of life under the sun, we got to encourage one another with the hope that we have that goes beyond this life, that there's a better life coming, a life that Jesus earned for us. He purchased it for us with his blood, with his death, with his resurrection. Because of your son, we have hope. We thank you that Jesus has purchased us not just forgiveness, but a paradise with you that he's purchased us resurrection, that he's purchased us a righteous government, that we will finally know true and unending peace, and that he's purchased us relentless perfection and joy and a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have hope because of your Son. I pray for any person here this morning who is weighed down by the cares and the worries of this world. I pray for any person who is suffering from loss or pain or tragedy. I pray for any person here who is feeling discouraged or depressed. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help them to see that you love them, that you are faithful to them, and that because of their faith in Jesus, a perfect life is coming soon for them. Thank you, Lord, that we can know that whatever pain we're in, it has an end. It will be replaced by unending joy. We thank you for that. We look forward to that. And we say with the saints, come Lord Jesus, come soon. In his name we pray, amen. Now if you'll stand, let's respond and worship.